Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. We will continue in Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, you know, there's no way that I can preach before Jonathan comes here and not kind of seem underwhelming. Um, but I can do it even more so because I'll be in Ecclesiastes today. And so he doesn't have to be in Ecclesiastes, and so he's going to get a leg up. Um, if you'll open up a Bible with me, we'll be there in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you don't have one with you, you can grab a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're welcome to open up with us. I think it's page 555 on the black hardbacks, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, before we jump in, um, Boston College, if you're familiar with them or not, they've got a, a center there, a little program. It's a center of wealth and philanthropy. And a while back, a few years back, they did a study. And what they did was they surveyed the ultra-rich, which is a cool title to have, um, um, ultra-rich. Um, and so what they did with these people, their average net worth was $78 million. I know you think you're doing well, and you might be doing well, million is another level, okay? Um, They serve these ultra-rich people. One of the reasons they did is because at $78 million, um, sociologists consider you completely financially secure. (laughs) Now, that might seem like an overstatement, understatement. Um, What they mean by that, though, is not just you can pay the bills and, you know, pay for an unexpected doctor's visit. They mean you could survive a total global economic collapse. If everything goes under, you've got enough that you'll be able to see your way through it. And so they define the ultra-rich that way, $78 million. And they survey them, they ask them some questions, and they're trying to get a sense for how secure they feel financially. And what they found is the overwhelming majority of them responded back saying they are not financially secure. Again, right, we're looking at paycheck to paycheck, balancing budgets, And it's kind of cute to us to hear them talk about, like, we're not really financially secure. So then they took a step further. They went back to them and said, when will you be financially secure? Right? That's the question all of us really have to ask. When is enough? When do we have no more to seek after? And they came back and they, again, more than half on average, they they said, we need one quarter more. So $100 million was the the threshold they had there um, for feeling really financially secure. Um, there's a term that was created, um, it was used in a, a legal defense uh, in a novel way um, in 2013. There was a young man who had uh, stolen a, a car. He was driving under the influence. Um, he had substance is in his blood as well. And he ended up killing four people. He injured 11. And uh, at the, the sentencing, after the trial, um, he did not go to prison. He was sentenced to 10 years probation. And it all hinged on a new legal defense. And the defense was that he had a case of affluenza. It's a combination of affluence and influenza. Um, and it's, it's actually a real thing. They didn't just make it up out of the air. Um, it's been defined like this. A painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Um, psychologists have done lots of groundbreaking studies on this. Um, when economies are doing better in a society where people have more wealth, they tend to have 
a strong correlation with more mental illness, with more dissatisfaction. It's kind of uh, counterintuitive to us. Um, And so they've come with a a term, and in his case, it was meant to refer to the fact that he had an inability to understand the consequences of one's actions because of his privilege. The argument was, look, he's always had so much money. His parents have gotten everything. He's never thought about a consequence once in his life, much less, you know, what a law might mean and doing these things might mean. Um, Again, it was a controversial sentence. Um, You maybe hope for the best for the kid. A few years later, he violated his probation and then went to jail. So uh, he ended up um, serving time uh, eventually anyways. Um, This morning, Solomon is going to be making some of the same observations um, that this sinner in Boston made and that these psychologists have made. Um, Observations about wealth and what it does to our society and what it does to us. Um, and we've seen in Ecclesiastes some de- dark, kind of depressing things as he kind of laments the evil and, and kind of meaninglessness of so much of our lives. Um, and today we get to what most think is the darkest part of Ecclesiastes. In particular, we're making an analogy that's just very, very dark. Um, but luckily, I don't think we have to linger there. I think Jesus is actually going to, in the Gospels, take up right where Solomon leaves off here in Ecclesiastes and lead us down into what a kingdom life might look like for you and I. Um, so we're going to read together in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We will pick it up uh, together again in verse 9. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 9, exploring the kind of vanity of wealth. <clears throat> verse 8, I'm sorry. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. After that word fields, you'll see a a little note there. It says 11 in my Bible. You flip down to the bottom, you see 11 in our Bible tells us the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. We don't know what this verse says. We don't really know what it means. Um, You can put it in a lot of different ways. Um, What we think it most likely means is not really what this ESV has gotten us to. Uh, The NLT puts it well, I think. They say, even the king milks the land for his own profit. The idea here is that even with all this oppression and injustice taking place, even the highest of the high in the bureaucracy are a part of the problem. There's a long history in the, the scriptures of Israel of seeing kings as part of the problem um, and not one of the solutions to the problems. Um, the Israelites didn't have a king at first, and they begged God for one. They wanted one, and God thought it was a bad idea, and he told them as much. And then they got one. God gives in to them. And most of our Old Testament, a big chunk of it at least, these these long stories are just story after story after story after story of kings making things worse, making mistakes, being corrupt, oppressing people. Even if they're not corrupt, they're fallible. So they make decisions that have unintended consequences and don't work out for them. So there's generally a kind of a negative view towards um, high levels of government and, and kings, um, that's not to say that the scriptures have no place for government. Um, God in, in Romans 13, we're told he, he ordains government to keep some order. It's just a very realistic picture. And here he seems to be saying, look, even the king, way at the top, he's, he's involved in this oppression and injustice. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is, this is really his thesis for the passage we'll be reading. If you love money, if your desire is for money, if you have greed for money, you won't find satisfaction. 
same with wealth. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's absurd. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil, or you could read this, a sickening tragedy that I've seen under the sun. He looks out and he says, I've noticed something and it makes me sick to the core. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Solomon's looking out and he says, there's oppression. People are greedy for more money and so they take advantage of other people. And then he says this, the money actually then takes advantage of them. These owners, they have riches, but they have them to their own harm, to their hurt. And and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, a, a sickening tragedy. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who uh, toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, his portion. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil I have seen under the sun, 6-1, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, meaningless, absurd. It is a grievous evil, a sickening tragedy. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not yet seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to this one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now you have a pretty long passage here. Um, we read all of it together. I want to talk about all of it together because it's tightly woven together. It mentions the same themes kind of over and over and over again. And so what he's really doing here is he's talking about um, the failure of greed, um, the dangers of greed, what greed um, for money and wealth does to the human heart. Um, and I'll point out um, four dangers, four failures that he mentions here. And we'll kind of pull from all around this passage because he just keeps repeating these themes kind of throughout. Um, the first thing he points out, and we see this right away, is that greed can't satisfy. He says, listening after money, it, it never brings with it satisfaction, never scratches the itch that it is supposed to. And he, he starts out the passage by talking about oppression. And at first we're like, what does oppression have to do with all of this money and wealth talk? 
Um, the, the sense we get, though, is he's less concerned with the oppression and more concerned with the oppressors who are exploiting people and, and why they're exploiting people, because they want more. They want to take advantage of someone else. He says there's a, a systemic aspect to this. Society structures are kind of built up in this way. It, it goes all the way to the top. So apparently, in the ancient world, they had kings and leaders in the government who were corrupt and were only out for their own interests uh, and weren't very, you know, solid, moral people. We don't experience things like that anymore. It's just straight, straight goodness all the way to the top. He's, he's looking out and he says, look, the whole system kind of is built for those who are higher and higher and higher to look down and grab and manipulate and exploit for um, their benefit, for more money, for more wealth. The desire, the lust um, for money is what fuels this oppression. And then he takes it to the more personal. Um, and the point he makes here, I think, is, is, is really profound. He says the, the greediness, those greedy people, they don't just hurt those beneath them. But they also hurt themselves. The riches of these owners are to their own hurt. Uh, he gives us, um, right here in this passage, I think three ways that this greed hurts us personally. The first one is it gives us an unattainable goal. It's not satisfying. By its very nature, um, money can't satisfy, wealth can't satisfy. The desire for more is always present. Again, this is the big question you ask someone when you're talking about finances. When is enough? When, when is enough? When is the point where you have enough? 78 million? They haven't reached that point. They want more. I was talking to someone earlier today who have uh, family members who are half billionaires. And he's, he says they're the most unhappy people I've ever met. And they work and they work and they work. And all of the houses, all the things they own drive them crazy. He says, and in fact, they're not just that kind of people. They were happier before where the big company went public and their C-level position inherited hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a treadmill. There's never, it's a carrot that's always out in front of you. And so he compares it to appetite at the end of, of chapter six. And I think that's a good comparison. It's a good metaphor for a way to think about our pursuit of wealth. Just like we get hungry and we eat, after we eat, we get hungry again. If you're like me, it's usually like, 15 to 30 minutes afterwards. Maybe it's a little more healthy for you, but it's a never-ending cycle. There's no, there's no goal, right? You never reach the point where you're like, and I've eaten, and it's done. There are other things in life now. It's something that keeps going. The goalpost moves all the time because it's inherent to the process. He says it's like that with money. You work for the paycheck, and it provides the rent. It provides uh, maybe some, some nice luxuries for you. And then you have to replenish because there's another rent and there are more expenses. And it goes on and on and on. There's never a goal that it reaches. Um, the second way, he says, greed hurts us personally. It kind of turns on us. Um, it's found in, in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, when people have more property, they increase who eat them. Uh, and what he's getting at here is the idea that money um, draws people to it kind of like a moth to a flame. Uh, the more money you have, the more people will notice. This is just kind of an inherent aspect of, of human life. So if you start to do pretty well for yourself, I can guarantee a few things will start to happen. One is the government will notice. 
stepped up. Like, I see you're doing really well. I'm really happy for you. I'm happy for us. Thieves are going to notice. Corrupt people, they're going to notice. And they're going to look for ways they could take advantage or trick or manipulate. Charities are going to notice. Perhaps I'm a little guilty of this on my end, right? As a nonprofit here. When people have a, a large um, amount of wealth and they tend to be generous, they tend to be the type of people who have about 30, 35 charities always coming to them for an ask. It's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just something that happens. And then, I mean, relatives will notice, right, if we're being honest. Relatives will notice. I see you're, you're doing kind of good for themselves. When I was a kid, I, you know, growing up on the, the cartoons and stuff that I watch, I imagined the adult life much different than it turned out to be, in, in particular the kind of problems that I encounter on a day-to-day basis. So as a kid, I was a big Rugrats fan. Um, and so these are babies right in diapers, and they're having these adventures. So I had a lot of thinking about, like, baby politics. Like, how am I going to handle these situations, right, when Tommy doesn't get along with this person, and then the dinosaur disappears? And turns out it's never been a problem yet. I've never, I've never encountered that. Now, I spent hours watching these shows, learning the morals, seeing what was happening. It's not come in useful. Another one, uh, quicksand. I worried about quicksand as a kid. Thought about what I would do if I got trapped in quicksand. Or booby traps. There are booby traps everywhere. This is going to be the kind of the stuff that is made up of life. I've never seen a booby trap. I'm not sure they exist. I'm not sure quicksand exists. It's never, never been a problem. You know what I wish someone would have told me when I was a kid? Was, hey, one day you're going to have a cousin who comes and asks for money. Because <laughs> those are the real tricky situations. Those are where it really gets interesting and, and dicey. So greed has this way of kind of creating more problems. Um, like the, the family I mentioned, right? You buy more houses, and then you have to keep up with those houses. And there's really no way out of it. So in my mind, I'm like, you have so much money, buy a staff, 20 people, full-time to handle all your houses. But then you've got to manage those people. I'll hire someone to manage them. But then I've got to manage him. And when I'm not so sure what's going on or I lose trust or something's off, then I have to go get involved in this complex web of things that I should be familiar with, but I'm not. It, it just kind of multiplies issues rather than solving them, which is kind of its problem. It's not to say that sometimes wealth and money doesn't solve some problems. It's just on a larger scale, it's kind of a dead end. It kind of creates more issues than it will ever be able to solve. The third reason that greed hurts us personally, he says, is anxiety. In in verse 12, he talks about um, not being able to sleep at night. The stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's two ways you can interpret this, and people do both ways. One is that um, they have indigestion. They literally can't sleep because they're rich and they have full stomachs. Um, Just like you and I, um, when we eat luxury foods and lots of luxury foods and lots of sugars and fats, our bodies don't always agree with us. In the ancient world... Right? If you were a little bit heavier and a little bit paler, it's a sign that you were royalty. You were, you were in there enjoying all of those things. And what's very likely is those people who enjoyed those things also had some of the negative side effects that come from enjoying those things. Another way to think about it is, is just this. They're anxious. They're anxious about their money. They're anxious about that investment that they made, about that asset. They're anxious about all the things that they can't control. I kind of came of age in a world 
um, where we had experienced this huge economic collapse. Kind of my adulthood started around that time. And so I've kind of always had this inherent kind of idea that, look, it could go away in a moment, right? It's, it's not up to me. I'm certainly not the invisible hand of the market. And I can do my best to follow along. But things turn. Things drop. Money can disappear. I've got very close friends who were actually high up in Enron. And while there were certainly really bad things happening at Enron, um, from what I hear and believe, it wasn't all bad. There were people who were trying their best, who didn't know necessarily what was going on. It doesn't matter. It all crumbled underneath them. They're all caught up in this, this web. It produces this anxiety. Greed causes people to exploit others. But it also causes us to exploit ourselves. This is the doubly dangerous thing about greed, our love for money. Not only do we exploit others to get more, but we end up actually exploiting ourselves. We take a little bit from our own souls and our own meaning, our own satisfaction. This is why in response to affluenza, all over the world, you're seeing a movement to downsize. There's a tiny home movement. And people are selling and and living simplistically. And the studies that go along with them show that their mental health improves. Shows that they're a little bit healthier. They rate themselves as more satisfied of having more meaning in life. This wealth seems to eat away at us in, in these tragic ways. We've seen three of the failures he talks about. There's four. It doesn't satisfy. It, it, it creates problems and it produces anxiety. The fourth one is that it creates tragic lives. Um, it, it creates sad stories, if you will. In 5, 13 through 17, he gives us a kind of cautionary tale about a guy who had lots of riches, and then they all disappear in a moment's notice because of a bad venture. And he has nothing in his hand. He goes back to the grave the way he came from it, naked with nothing. And Solomon looks out on that just as an observer, and he says, what a sad situation that is. And I think we can all agree with that. Imagine a person who, who works their entire life that seems to be their single-minded goal, and they, they kind of become the success that, that we hold out in front of us. They kind of build the, the foundation that, that we're all kind of inherently leaning towards as the American dream. And then they wake up one morning, and it's gone. They've got nothing. Their kids have nothing. That's sad. And what a sad story. What a tragic life that is. In chapter 6, he gives us another cautionary tale. Um, it's similar, just a little bit different. He talks about a, a man who um, lacks nothing, um, but God doesn't, he says, give him the power to enjoy it. He says, you've got this person who gets what everyone else would ever want to get. There's not anything he lacks, and he can't appreciate it. You can't enjoy it. Solomon says again, just look at this. What a sad situation. That you've made it. You've reached the goals. You've got the savings. You've got the vacations. And they don't bring you any joy. What a sad story. What a tragic ending. Now in the middle of the passage we read, verses 18 to 20, we get what we've been calling carpe diem passages. They're passages that look like Solomon has given us a way out. 
some happiness in the moments. I've said before that I'm not so sure that they're always as happy as we like to interpret them as. Um, one of the reasons Ecclesiastes isn't preached much is because of how dark it is. Um, he, he talks about this man who uh, um, couldn't enjoy his wealth, and he says, a stillborn child is better than him. This is the, where people think this is the darkest, really, Ecclesiastes gets. Most of us in this room right now, in a very personal way, have experienced, directly or indirectly, a miscarriage. A child who's born without life. And he said before it might be better not to live than to live because of some of these absurd things that happen in our lives. Now he says, though, the pain and the awfulness that is a miscarriage, that is a stillborn child, he says that's better than the guy who gets his money. The guy who gets all the wealth he wants and finds it doesn't do anything for him. He can't enjoy it. But in verse 18, he says, Behold, what I've, I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now we would love to read this and think like he gives us a little bit of life here. There's some sunshine after all of the rain. It's hard to, to preach through books if there's not you know, at least some places where you can kind of come up for air. And so we have this strong bent to want to interpret these as really positive things. I think this Carpe Diem passage, though, is the clearest that he's not being positive. That this is actually not a, a, a thing he's celebrating here. Um, you can look at it with this. Um, in, in verse 18, he talks about eating and drinking and, drinking and finding enjoyment. And how does he describe it under the sun? The few days of his life that God has given him. If you remember from the very beginning, death was always his problem. Death is the thing that makes everything equal. You can get a lot. You can have nothing. You can be wise. You can be foolish. You can be a king. You can be a slave. You all go to the same, the same place. Death equalizes all these things. He's talking about enjoyment and eating and drinking. And it's almost sounds a little sarcastic. A few days of your life, God decided to throw you away. It's hard to read this as something that he's rejoicing in, because this is the very problem. This is the thing that's created this whole issue for him, that's made him lament. Sure, maybe you can eat and drink and enjoy your toil. Have fun. We're We're all going there. That's coming our way. Uh, also in verse 19, if you read closely, we, we read this and we kind of assume that God's giving everyone some wealth and possessions to enjoy them. But that's not what the text says. It says, everyone to whom God has given wealth and the power to enjoy them, this is the gift of God. He's saying here, we don't even get to decide who gets the wealth. He has the sovereign view of God here. God kind of arbitrarily gives it to one person over another, and he decides who can enjoy it and who can't enjoy it. This is, this is, this is a, a part of the vanity, I think, for, for Kohelet. He says he'll not remember the days of his life. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We can read that as someone will be happy, you know, his whole life. I think really what he's getting here is you don't remember what it was like when you bought that nice luxury car 10 years ago. You moved on. Your heart's always chasing the next joy. You have a few days, and it's even hard to be satisfied during those days. 
he can enjoy what you've gotten. Now, as I'm reading this and, and studying this this week, I keep thinking about something that Jesus um, said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you don't have to flip there. We'll, we'll throw it up on the screen behind us. In, in chapter 6 of Matthew, um, with the um, Sermon on the Mount, can we get it up on the screen? Um, we, we come to a place where Jesus starts to talk about wealth and treasures and, and money. Uh, and he says this, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And what struck me is that it seems that Jesus is agreeing with Coalette. He gives us a command. It's a negative command. Don't pursue earthly treasures. Don't go after the trinkets. Don't go after the houses. Don't go after these big investments. And if you look at it, it's not a super spiritual reason he gives. It's really practical. It's what Colette's been saying, Solomon, in this, in this passage this morning. Thieves can get it. It'll rest. It's going to be destroyed. You won't take it with you. It's not practical. What's more interesting to me, though, is the solution Jesus gives. He seems to agree with Colette, but he goes farther than Colette can go. He is Jesus, after all, and he's come to bring God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, it seems like we can turn a corner out of this kind of vanity of wealth. He says, but instead, lay up for yourself, pursue, acquire treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doesn't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. Jesus doesn't seem to think that the desire for profit is wrong, that the motivation to acquire things is wrong. He seems to think it just is directed in the wrong place. If you go after these earthly treasures, he says it's a bad investment. It's a bad way to use your time. It's a bad way to use your assets and your energy and your resources and your skills because of all the things we've been reading in Ecclesiastes. He says, instead, though, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, this is a better investment. This is something that will last. This is something that will actually be paid out to you on the other side of death. You can start putting away things, and the compound interest of God will result in a reward that is truly meaningful. It's truly profound. Something you can truly enjoy. In chapter 6, he's been talking about rewards that the Father will give. Um, he starts the chapter by, by talking about righteousness and doing righteousness because the Father will reward you. He, he mentions three examples. Um, prayer, giving, money away, being generous, and then um, fasting. And after each one of these, he says, if you do it in front of other people, you've gotten your reward. That was their applause. Enjoy it. He says, but if you do it in secret, if you do it just for the kingdom— he says, your Father who is in heaven will reward you. Now, Christians are anxious about this kind of reward language. What does that mean, we'll be rewarded? Should we do something for a reason other than the fact that it's the right thing to do? We're also um, influenced by philosophers like Immanuel Kant, who, who have kind of theorized that the more you do something in order to get something for yourself, the less moral it 
it becomes, right? So you can do the right thing, but if you do it for a reason other than just out of your generous kindness, right, it's a little bit less moral. So I could, I could give you a car because you need a car, or I could give you a car because I know that's going to help me write a book, so the deal, go on a speaking tour. We would say the second one is not as moral, right? I mean, she's still got a car, but not quite as good. Jesus doesn't seem to adopt this kind of philosophy. He seems to think righteousness can and should be motivated by receiving something from the things that we do, the righteousness that we walk in. Again, we we kind of shy away from this language. This week I was thinking about it and studying it, and and what I found was this reward-type language is actually not uncommon for the Jewish people of his time. Most of this Jewish text, they talk about this all the time. It's a very, it's a very common, non-debatable kind of topic. And you find it actually throughout the rest of the New Testament. You have rewards language. You're told you'll get a crown for this, a crown for that. There seems to be this idea that Jesus adopts, that there is a treasury in heaven where God is. And when you do certain things, when you walk in a kingdom way, it acquires your investing, and one day it will be paid out to you. And we have all kinds of questions, right? I mean, it's not the greatest reward, just salvation, right? Being with God, is there a level up from that? Does that even make sense? Or what would it be like for there to be varying degrees of rewards, right? Like, you only get a couple of things, but, you know, I really stockpiled. I'm really going to enjoy this, this payout. C.S. Lewis uh, had, had theorized um, one of the ways to think about these rewards. I think it's a helpful one. He says some rewards are not, all rewards aren't created equal. Some rewards are not connected inherently to the action. But other rewards are kind of an inherent result of the action. So if, if your child gets an A on a test and you give them $200, that's a reward. But there's no, there's no connection. Right? There's nothing inherently about getting a grade or studying that results in $200 besides your arbitrary decree. By the way, I'll go back to school. You're giving out $200 for good grades. But what if your child works really hard and over the course of three years, they learn the language of French fluently? And then you reward them with a vacation to France where they get to enjoy experience really actually use what they've done. See, there's a connection there. It's kind of inherent. He says, what if that's what Jesus is getting at with these rewards? When you walk in the ways of the kingdom, when you walk in righteousness, what if what it produces is not arbitrary, but is the result, something you wouldn't get otherwise? The only way there is to go through these paths of righteousness. We don't know what these treasures are. We don't know what the rewards are what it will be like. We don't know how metaphorical they are, how literal they are. It could be, you know, a greater sense of closeness to God. It could be, it seems in some of the passages, more responsibility in the new earth and new heaven. Revelation says Jesus' people will reign with him. It seems like they're going to be tasked to do. We're going to be, we're going to be doing things like we were intended to do in Genesis. And it could be we might have a little bit more responsibility. We've invested the money wisely. We've, we've used our talents wisely. But what does strike me is Jesus does say the desire itself is not wrong. The motivation is not wrong. It's just misplaced. 
You don't have to just try to imagine and, and miraculously get rid of any desire for anything. And I am perfectly content. I need nothing. I'll take nothing. I'll consume nothing. It's not going to happen. It's going to be frustrating. He says, you can just redirect that motivation. And again, he says, I'm not playing like spiritual religious games on you. It's practical. It's a better use of your time, he says, to go out and give money to the poor than it is to take a second job. One will get you some more money in your bank account. The other, though, is putting something away in heaven. One might be temporarily useful. One will be eternally useful. It's a different way of of thinking about life. It's a path forward, I think, that Jesus gives us um, in the kingdom. Um, I want to end by by reading a poem, and we'll we'll wrap up with this. Um, It's called The Pulley um, by George Herbert. Um, You've got up there small uh, letters. I'll read it to you. Um, It goes like this. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which disperse a lie, contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made us stay, perceiving that, alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breasts. The image here is, is God creating and pouring out blessings on humanity. He's got his treasures, and he's pouring them out, and he gets to the very bottom, and he says, I'm going to hold this one back. The, kind of the granddaddy of the blessings. True rest. Peace. This is what we're thinking of when we think of heaven and eternal life. And he does it, the poem imagines, because for some people, even if goodness, God's goodness, isn't enough to turn them towards him, Maybe that itch that they have that they know is only available with God will, will get them there. This restlessness in the, the heart of humans, the questions that Ecclesiastes asks, entangles with and wrestles with. And so, for many of us, the goodness of God in Christ creates this desire for us to walk in the ways of Christ, to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, I don't think it's contradictory to also be fueled by this sense of holy discontent, righteous restlessness. So there's, there's still something out there. And I, I won't find it here. I'll find it in the kingdom of Jesus and the future that he is bringing. And so this morning, I, I, I ask you, have you gotten and tired enough? Are you restless enough? Have you grown so weary pursuing earthly treasures that we're ready to pursue heavenly treasures?